Welcome to the St. Therese uh, Institute podcast. My name is Nick. And I'm Jim. And this is our first uh, first run of this show podcast. I don't know, Nick, what are we going to call this thing anyway? I'm not exactly sure what it is. How did it come about? Um, well, basically, uh, we decided that there was... Um, and we would ask students as they left St. Therese what they would have liked to receive as they went out the door. And many of them said that they would have really enjoyed hearing some kind of a podcast or talk show or something along those lines from Jim and I. Um, it's, I was, I'm kind of surprised. I'm, I, I thought they would have had heard enough of us. But uh, so we saw that felt need and we just decided to put something up here. Um, so that's that's cool. kind of how it came about. And why would they want to hear from us? Because <laughs> about we're yourself, awesome. Nick, who are you? this, is, this is Nick Pirlo. He's the assistant director of uh, Saint Therese uh, Institute of Faith and Mission here, and uh, has been at Saint Therese for for a couple of uh, been here for a couple of years now. And uh, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So um, I guess I'll start off more formally. Um, I am born and raised in Prince Edward Island, um, all on the other end of Canada. And uh, I got my BA in Religious Studies from the University of Prince Edward Island, my MA from uh, the Maryville Institute in England. Um, but luckily, uh, academic credentials aren't my whole life, um, thank goodness. Uh, I got married to a lovely woman named Denise Mallet, who's a Saskatchewan resident. So that's part of the reason why we're actually here in Saskatchewan. Uh, yeah, no, you marry a Saskatchewan girl and eventually she wants to go home. Mm. So, yeah, that we made the trek across uh, the uh, across Canada a little, about two years ago now. Saw the job offering at St. Therese Institute and, well, the rest is history. Here you are. Um, yeah, about myself, um, I, I love board gaming. Um, I'm an avid wine and beer uh, maker, not in terms of being professional, but I just love making those things on the side as a side hobby. And... Yeah, I'm just trying to, I just love expanding myself. Excellent. Okay, Excellent. and how about yourself, Jim? Tell us well, about yourself. <laughs> well, I'm the director of formation here at St. Therese. I've been, uh, been here since the, uh, the, the, first, uh, the, the first time the doors opened here in the first class. So that would have been in 2007, so it's been 12 years. And it's just been a real grace to be here, a real joy. I'm originally from Ontario. Um, I was born in Toronto, grew up in rural Ontario, uh, ended up going down to the United States um, after a year and a half of university to go on net. And that's where I really encountered my faith more deeply, encountered the Lord more deeply. And it was a transformative experience for me. And probably the first experience of actually having you know, nine months of deeper formation uh, and deeper, uh, deeper experience that way. So probably planted seeds for what St. Therese would, would be there. Hmm. Uh, ended up going to Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, picked up a couple of pieces of paper there and uh, <laughs> did some work down in the States. Uh, married, um, uh, Lisa is, uh, married Lisa in 1994, and we have three sons uh, who are all adults now. Uh, great fellas, great fellas. Um, yeah, and it's just been a real joy to be here. So um, it's good. But, but we've got this podcast thing coming. We don't even know what to call it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's actually probably a good first topic of conversation. Um, what we had a few ideas of what to name this thing, um, a few wayward ideas, I might add. In fact, one of the ideas we had for naming this podcast was wayward, wayward conversations. Yeah. Wayward conversations with, <laughs> with, uh, with Jim and Nick. Uh, wayward with an O or an A, depending. <laughs> depending um, on the nature of the conversation, yeah. Yeah, no, I think um, there was another idea of little conversations or little chats. Um, 
uh, coming off of the little way of St. Therese, you know, something near and dear to our hearts. Uh, what was another one that we were thinking? I kind of, we, you know, the sense of like one of the beautiful parts of the life at St. Therese is just that time of hanging out in the coffee room and uh, just chatting and uh, kibbutzing and sometimes the ideas are more serious, sometimes the ideas are light and lively. Um, and uh, so it was a bit of the thought of maybe bringing the coffee house experience hmm. um, out to people and just letting, uh, letting them uh, eavesdrop on a conversation <laughs> and maybe participate a little bit too. Uh, so I don't know, coffee room conversations, coffee room chats, coffee with Jim and Nick, Jim and Nick show, um, waywards, <laughs> keep it little, keep it light, keep it secret, keep it safe. Of course, that's <laughs> yeah. not great for Pierre. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. yeah, no. Um, well, uh, toss I mean, it out. yeah, I think that's exactly what we should do. In fact, I believe with the, uh, with the inauguration or the uh, publication of this podcast on Facebook, we're probably going to set up a Facebook poll with all the options and maybe a few others um, on the actual uh, site or Facebook page. And if you guys want, those of you who are listening, you can vote on the name that you like or even add one of your own in there. Um, appropriate, of course. Uh, and we'll see what, uh, what kind of comes out. And the next podcast we have, we might have already chosen a name and we might inaugurate it as such. So that's, uh, I think that's a good way to keep going. Yeah, so certainly invite any of our, our viewers, uh, uh, the students, uh, the alumni of uh, St. Therese, if you've got an idea for what this might be called, uh, fire it into us uh, sooner than later. That would be great. And by, the next, uh, by next week when we have our show again, we'll actually have a name for it, and, and that'll be good fun. I should point out uh, just a big word of thanks for all of the background organizing of this. Um, the, uh, the, the Jimmy Rigged production, literally Jimmy Rigged, with James Riley, uh, who is uh, cameraman, producer, editor, uh, everything. Uh, and those of you who know James know that that's uh, very much how it is with James. He's a, a man who wears many hats um, and certainly doing a whole lot of, <laughs> a whole lot of work <laughs> behind the scenes. We should also mention that uh, we should also mention there's James behind the camera with his other camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention that this is uh, pre-recorded live. That's a very important point uh, in front of a studio audience. So, mm-hmm. hello to Christian. Hey, Christian, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you call putting someone on the spot. Putting someone on the spot. <laughs> right on. Yeah. You're gonna have to clap quite loud in order to get that ambiance. You know. So again, uh, just inviting your uh, inviting your, your your names for the show, Nick. I'm really looking forward to seeing what that's going to turn out to. Uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I know. I've so. got I've got my own little favorites here and there, but I have uh, no doubt you usually do. I usually do. <laughs> We're both very particular As in do our I. way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, perhaps that's enough about uh, the Facebook poll. Um, I would like to reiterate that uh, we are planning to do this on a weekly. Uh, basis for the time being, uh, hopefully at least weekly, maybe bi-weekly, depending on the season and such. Mm-hmm. Is your sense that this is really only for the students of St. Therese or the, the alumni? Oh no, I think that this should be open to everybody. Um, in fact, it is. That's what, that's what we're doing. Because we are both just so incredibly clever and have so much you know, that is of great yeah, interest or, to the or, world. Or incredibly conceited, <laughs> uh, one of the two. <laughs> so no, I think that this is a good opportunity for anyone seeing into St. Therese, seeing what uh, the personalities are that run it, as well as see get a taste of some theological ideas being thrown around sure. um, and also just uh, I think it's just fun I just really am yeah. enjoying the concept of just sitting down and having regular conversation like we have in our coffee room uh, well it was a lot of fun to actually have that conversation yesterday as we were preparing for this and uh, I think we were going at it for about an hour and a half just <laughs> tossing ideas around in the coffee room so it's really kind of just bringing that conversation uh, here 
I mean, we're realizing with the different uh, ebbs and flows of it, the, the structure, we start off with our welcomes and our, our introductions, but uh, kind of the meat and potatoes of it was to actually raise a, raise a conversation, a topic for conversation, and without much pre-planning, just see where the conversation goes. And one of the ideas that we're talking about for, for today was on the Catholic uh, sacramental imagination. Ooh, yep, that's right. That was uh, that was going to be our topic of the day. Topic of the day. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to be a, t a title heading for this or not. We'll see. All everything's in flux. But I guess the main question, therefore, Jim, is uh, what is a Catholic sacramental imagination? Um, I know myself. I have some views on this. Um, you know, after some study and, of course, reading and well, do tell, Nick. Well, well, of, of <laughs> course. But what I was going to do is I was going to kick it over to you because you, you of all people, in between the, you and me, know a lot more about the Catholic Sacrament generation than um, I do because well, experientially, might I add. Well, I'm yeah. Well. Okay, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm getting at is that Jim, uh, Jim's actually written a book um, or two, and uh, we'll talk about those books there in a little bit. Um, but uh, I guess maybe one way that we can kind of uh, start breaking this down is maybe even examining each of the words in Catholic sacramental uh, imagination. Idea. Yeah, So it's kind of what was in my own mind just to start off with. Yeah. So go for it. Okay. So Catholic, um, Catholic literally just means universal. Mm -hmm. um, in another sense, it could be more particular, like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the way I like to view the Catholic and Catholic sacramental imagination is just those universal elements of human life and yeah. life in the cosmos, life in the created order. Um, those principal truths of reality that we as human beings and as creatures um, admit to be as true. Uh, admit to be as good, admit to be as uh, as beautiful. Yeah, I think there's something, uh, you're pointing to the objective nature, and I think that mm. that's certainly a, a, an integral part of it. And I would begin the the, uh, the description the same way that you do, of looking at the word Catholic as universal and as being fundamentally human. Mm. So I think that yep. there is the objective, and it's that we are focused on these objective realities. Uh, but I would also... Uh, reflect that these are also subjectively experienced. Of so course. we speak about these fundamental <clears throat> human experiences um, that we all experience. I remember uh, having conversations with Archbishop Don Bolin uh, about this. This is one of his kind of uh, uh, pet pet projects that he that mm. he mulls on is these notion the notion of fundamental human experience: birth, death, love, uh, family, parenthood, mm. childhood, sonship, daughter, daughterhood. All of these fundamental human experiences, we all encounter them. Mm. We all have experienced them or will experience them. But how we experience them uh, brings that richness mm. and that vibrancy. So I certainly think starting with that notion of Catholic universal common to the human experience, objectively, subjectively, is important. No, I, I agree. I mean, in fact, um, I hear a lot of John Paul II in there um, whenever you're chatting, uh, which is not surprising considering you teach Principles of Self-Determination by John Paul II yeah, to your second More surprising years. because you have very finely tuned JP2 ears. You like to hear everything <laughs> through those filters, that's good. Yes, yeah, no, I'm a bit categorical like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I think that's perfect. Um, it's interesting to note that even John Paul II, he says that um, each individual is properly a subject as well as sharing in an objective nature. And it's actually uh, proper for the objective human nature to be expressed in a subject. Uh, and I, I think it's very important to kind of keep those two very closely knit because there is no such thing as just maintaining uh, Catholicity at a, a formulaic level or like these cosmic concepts floating around in the, co in the cosmos. Rather, I really like the way that um, Hans Urs von Balthasar puts it where uh, Catholicity universals 
um, are properly events, mm. not just ideas mm. floating around. Um, not just this platonic kind of world of forms just being cold, totally abstract, and we're just trying to escape the shackles of this world. There's something very nitty-gritty about Catholicity and universality that I really appreciate. It really comes down to an incarnational notion. Yeah, and I think the incarnational is integral. Uh, lest we, as you're pointing out, you know, drift off into the stratosphere with our thinking. You've got to keep it grounded. Uh, or some dear friends of, uh, of ours here at St. Therese would say, uh, keep it Grounded, keep it light. Grounded in light, you know, and that's that, that sense of, of uh, grounded in the, in the human experience, the incarnational. Mm -hmm. I think there's another nuance then to Catholic, and that will be attached to the second word. If you just want to of course, I, I thought that was a natural like, segue. How can we really speak about sacrament unless we are coming from the Catholic uh, mm. perspective, meaning Catholic in, insofar as religious, uh, religious practice and teaching and doctrine. That notion of a sacrament being... Uh, a sign of a very particular sort, a sign that conveys a very specific grace that is, in fact, what it symbolizes. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we speak of these small-ass sacraments, there's a way of seeing the world uh, as a Catholic that is grounded in these universal experiences, these fundamental experiences, our subjective experience of the objective realities that helps us to see things as um, uh, one of the terms that you know I like to use a lot is that notion of an icon, mm -hmm. uh, that we don't just simply see uh, the paint, the plaster, and the wood, mm -hmm. but we see through that uh, to the deeper realities as icons called windows to heaven. And, and I think that really captures that notion of... Uh, um, uh, of sacramentality is that we see that the world around us, or as uh, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins would say, you know, the world is is charged with the grandeur of God. All mm. things are charged. There's a there's a deep resonance that uh, that resides in mm -hmm. things. No, I actually quite appreciate that you just quoted Gerard Manley Hopkins on there because uh, I remember actually coming across that exact poem and that exact quote because uh, it was in a class on Catholic social teaching, of all things. Hmm. Oh, no, it wasn't Catholic social teaching. I had a class on uh, beauty. It was very similar to your way of beauty course. And I had just finished reading, I think, a uh, short story by Flannery O'Connor. And this, the professor had uh, apparently... Uh, just posted this poem at the very end accidentally hmm. or something like that. But with this professor, it's never accidental. It's never accidental. And so uh, this will tie into our reflections later on applications of the Catholic sac sacramental imagination. But I always thought that this notion of the world being charged or energized, electrified with the presence of God to be very fitting, a very fitting image for a sacramental imagination. I mean, of course, um, you know, a capital S sacrament and then a little s sacrament um, perhaps maybe could be distinguished here. And, well, know. I think there would necessarily have to be, and yet they're going to be rooted in the same understanding of sacramental of economy, how these things work. Well, maybe you'd like to just clarify the distinction. Well, I'll give it my best shot. You're the, you teach sacraments to the first years. Um, you do too. <laughs> yeah, I'm more, uh, I'm more the spirituality guy, I guess. But even then, you've got a one-up on me. Um, yeah, so capital S sacrament would be uh, a sign that makes pregnant pre makes present what it signifies. So, for example, the oh, I like the slip that you made there, though. 
makes it pregnant. Makes pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, the are getting all married. So Denise, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> pregnant. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're expecting our. Uh, so uh, our on, carry one. on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes present, makes pregnant. I makes want you to, I want you to run with that one, Nick. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, you know, who knows? You took us there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's a capital S sacrament. Makes present what it signifies. So, for example. Um, uh, Eucharist is, a, is one that comes to mind. We say that the Eucharist is Christ. And when the, the priest proclaims the words of consecration over it, he says, this is my body, do this in memory of me. Um, that is now Jesus Christ um, mm -hmm. through some mystery of uh, substitution, transubstantiation, um, whatever the term you like to call it. Um, whereas I would perhaps spitball that uh, when we look at the world, sacramental, um, would be saying that everything acts as a signpost to God. Now, of course, I would go with Thomas Aquinas who says that every single human being, every single item in creation necessarily has a connection to the Creator because the Creator is actually, when He creates creation, it's not all one action at the beginning of time and then He leaves alone. That's more yeah. of a deistic view. Sure, yeah. Um, rather, the Creator properly is creating all the time. And so in that sense, that implies that there's this fundamental relationship that is undergirding all things. Mm. And this, I actually, I think, um, sets up even our previous discussion of Catholicity. But even un undergirding kind of removes it from it because it's, when we speak about foundation, you can think of it undergirding, but I think it much more as we were speaking with, with the notion of Hopkins, it's charged. Oh, yes. It, it, it inspirits, uh, kind of like God breathing. He's constantly breathing into the very essence, mm -hmm. or in fact, breathing the very essence of all things into all things. Of course. He is the eternal now. Mm -hmm. So time is actually the first of his creatures carved out of his eternity, which he is eternal in. Just a thought, yeah. Oh, Sorry, no, I, th you. I think that's beautiful because you can look at this in a fairly cold sense. But really, if you think about it, this God who is in relation with the world and creating each thing constantly, it means he's intensely interested in it. Hmm. And um, I really love the image of, uh, of God as an artist hmm. um, because you could think of God as almost this automaton, kind of creating the world and such and just maintaining its functions and then each of the creatures goes about its own business. But rather, God is actually interested in painting a marvelous tapestry or painting a tapestry, painting a marvelous painting or weaving a, a grand tapestry. And so he is fundamentally interested in every hair of our heads, as scripture says. And, uh, Obviously more interested in you than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as my father used to say, you know, uh, God created some heads perfect and others he had to cover with hair. Yeah, that's right. Well, I just always claim to have an air-cooled brain. So, uh, <laughs> that's just because yeah. of all the big thinking that's going on. Is that an indication that I'm a hothead? Um, <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but you may be moving in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, Listen, on. I'm not going to let you off the hook, though, on this one, Nick. Uh, that little slip that you made earlier. <laughs> the presence of God. I want to, the, the notion of pregnancy. I think that being pregnant with God, especially you know, f for us who really love this notion of an incarnational theology, an incarnational mm -hmm. spirituality, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Just off top of your head, top of your heart. Well, I think that, um, I mean, and I haven't looked into this that deeply, but something that from St. Paul comes to mind. Um, he says that creation groans and travails. Like, Ooh. Like this, uh, this deeply like pregnant imagery of mm. all of creation is groaning and, and the dilation of the heart and the dilation of the heart and in the end, like at the end of time when Christ comes again, the creation will be brought to term and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Mm. You know, we have the conception, if you will, of the new creation already being planted within us. 
Um, and that is a continuing reality that un breaks open um, as we go forward in sanctity for each of us. Um, but there's also this notion of the whole cosmos um, in this pregnancy, I would argue. Mm. Um, and uh, to tell you the truth, I, I, it's one thing that's been percolating in the back of my mind for a little while. I was talking to Scott Powell um, when he's a speaker who came from uh, came for our, our uh, Lenten conference this yeah. year, yeah. and he a has good a conference. Yeah, it was an excellent conference. Yeah. And he also just a bit of a plug to him. I know this is for free. Uh, take that as you will, Scott Powell. He does a podcast called The Lanky Guys, where him and uh, his priest friend uh, they talk about this upcoming Sunday Gospel. So check it out. It's really cool. Um, but he was saying that he did his whole Ph.D. thesis on this question of creation groaning in travail. And he related to ecology and care for the earth. Mm. Um, and I think that we could perhaps turn that to our purposes here. Whenever we think of creation, whenever we look at it in a Catholic sacramental imagination, we haven't even got to the third word yet, um, I think that we see God being concerned for the world like a mother. He's wanting not just to bring the perfection of each human being. He's wanting to bring the perfection and the ordering of the whole cosmos. And that's with this giant tapestry he's weaving. And so we as human beings, when we embrace a Catholic sacramental imagination, we are actually being introduced into what you could term a theodrama. Mm. You know, we are actors on the world stage of God's grandeur. Um, and so for me, that's precisely what gives me life, to have this broad, uh, dare I say, metaphysical picture that is more dynamic. It's not just metaphysical concept, it's mm. narrative. I think that's important. You're speaking metaphysic, uh, and I'd like to come back to that. Before we move on from the pregnant thing, though. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> I think that's a really important thing. It, it's actually the very moment of incarnation. It's here the Word became flesh, and I think that this is actually really central to what the Catholic sacramental imagination is. Hmm. Um, that fundamental human experience that all of us have experienced is that conception, gestation, mm. birth, and new life. And certainly our, our God entered into this. Here, the Word became flesh. That's a sign at Nazareth, at the, the place of the Incarnation. Here, the Word became flesh. Uh, the Word of God, the Logos, uh, mm -hmm. another way of... of, of uh, defining logos is word is meaning mm -hmm. and I think this catches the essence of what the sacramental imagination is it's recognizing that everything around us is pregnant with deeper meaning mm -hmm. and in fact as you'd speak you know these the, it, it's not just of cosmological significance but it is of the creative power of the cosmology it is charged with something of God himself mm -hmm. not that we would fall into some form of Pantheism. Pantheism or yeah. panentheism, but it's, it, rather it's just that everything ba bears the, uh, the, 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 the fingerprints of God. Mm -hmm. uh, as you were saying, how he holds everything in, in existence at all times. The sacramental imagination, I, I believe, allows us, I experience, allows me to penetrate into that deeper meaning in a sense and in a way. Of course, mm. we're encountering mysteries here, mm. and uh, mystery is as we like to define it, is not that which cannot be known, but that which cannot be fully known. Uh, but it's worth the effort to at least go on uh, on an exploratory <laughs> foray into it. Um, so with that notion of the sacramental imagination, here the word became flesh, and it's making the, the word flesh, and it's penetrating into that depth of meaning that su sustains the foundation of all meanings. Mm -hmm. um, and imagination, I think it's important that we mention that too. Well, what is the imagination? The imagination is part, of, as Thomas Aquinas would say, is one of those interior sensitive powers coupled with memory. and helps us to appreciate 
the created order around us mm -hmm. uh, and link it as we would as we are human persons with the deeper ideas and the significance the concepts of that so there we even see that sense of sacramentality that the image allows us to enter more deeply into the concept, the idea that's behind. Now I've got all of my first year students who suffered through <laughs> critical thinking with me wincing a little bit, either wincing or going, oh yeah, 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 I'm not sure. Anyhow, your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it's funny. Not on critical thinking, but on it. Well, just to say something about those students <laughs> in critical thinking, I remember tackling these, this stuff for the first time too, and it was a lot of labor pains. Mm, that's um, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Feel the burn, feel the burn. And I keep telling those students too, like John Paul II didn't know what to make of philosophy at the first for four months dealing with it, and that's your course, you know. So if John Paul II had a hard time, you know, we, we have a bit of permission. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with uh, your articulation of imagination. I think it's totally fascinating, too, though, um, how Aquinas, and he, he, he relies on Aristotle for this, but he's distinct in his own right. He says that it's, it's actually fascinating how there's, for him, every single act of the intellect for anything we do actually relies on imagination. Yeah, we're body, soul, unity, and so the work of the imagination and the work of the spiritual faculty of intellect mm -hmm. are conjoined, not the same, but conjoined in the human person. I think that's part of the richness of our humanity. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, this even connects to the sacramental, uh, well, dare I say, incarnational uh, perspective that you and I share, as well as the Catholic tradition, um, which is that we take seriously the body and we mm -hmm. take seriously our flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also argue the sensual life. Of That's course. part of it. Not to go overboard with that. And I think Christopher West would speak about this too, is he, you know, that balance between, uh, between the stoic and the addict is the mystic. And I think that really leads us into what the application of, of the sacramental imagination is. It's ultimately living a mystical life. Mm -hmm. Now we tend to think of mystics as being, you know, floating around <laughs> in the sky or something or having yeah. visions. And, Really, it's the mystical life is about actually able to, uh, being able to see all of the created order as an icon to something deep, deeper. C.S. Lewis would speak about this from the argument of desire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's actually interesting too that you mentioned the mystic and you know this notion of like someone levitating away or some, you know Ju Joseph Cupertino or Teresa of Avila. And I think the way to view a mystic in that sense of these great contemplative experiences is actually to see an unfolding of the deeper reality of what's actually going on, that the world is, as you said, charged with the grandeur of God, and that these are extraordinary um, expositions or uh, maybe a, a turning of the veil on what the ordinary extraordinary is already there. The ordinary extraordinary. The ordinary extraordinary. Yeah. is the extraordinary extraordinary and then the ordinary extraordinary, ordinary, and yeah. then we just get wordiness. And that's just so much Nazareth, really. Yes, yeah. yeah. That the ordinary is charged with greatness. Imagine Nazareth, that hidden home in this obscure village and there dwelt mm -hmm. you know, divine incarnate love. Yes, no, exactly. I even think, um, you know, the catechism tells us that uh, Jesus uh, grew in the human manner. Mm. Uh, and so you even think of like Joseph and Mary, and this might be over sentimentalized, but I think it's taking seriously the incarnation. Um, Joseph, Joseph and Mary telling him stories mm. and sitting down and actually unfolding the realities of like uh, even looking at a tree and appreciating it and seeing God's grandeur in it. Yeah. In his humanity, he would have, he would have had a, um, uh, a restored humanity, 
uh, in that sense when, when he was born. He was born without sin. But like he too had to come to learn how to see these things in his humanity, albeit in a mystical, um, mysterious manner when connected with his divinity. And so I, I love, um, I think it was Bonaventure's point, and then Romano Gardini echoed it. He said that when you want to contemplate Christ, um, try putting aside his divinity for a time and mm. actually focus on his humanity. Be, be careful not at the expense of his divinity. Of but. course. Um, yeah, and that's, and I, I don't think, think we're going to choose <laughs> Romano no, Gardini or Bonaventure. No, no, not at all. But I just, that, that it's helpful to know always, always in balance, but to focus on the humanity, which I think is what we're doing. That's the essence of the sacramental imagination is not to fall into the, the, the realm of of um, the Stoicism, which would set aside the, of course, the physical world, the material world, uh, the world around. Well, that's the beautiful of this, of the sacramental sense of the Catholic Church. You know, filled with statuary, and bells, smells, candles. Like here, we have a candle lit, two candles lit, uh, for a specific reason. You know, it's that it all leads to something else. Um, interjecting here, I know, but there's a. Uh, a thought I wanted to share is just uh, a thought that I'd been introduced to just a couple of weeks ago when we had a guest presenter in the Way of Beauty class, uh, a fellow named David Kang, uh, who is a film producer, uh, writer, uh, filmmaker uh, out of the States with Eche Films. And he was speaking about this notion because in the, the Way of Beauty class, we speak a lot about postmodernity and postmodern mm -hmm. thought. And uh, um, he was actually reframing that without being very direct about it. He reframed that and he started speaking about post-enlightenment thought. Hmm. And I was really struck by this and I've been chewing on it in the last while. Uh, we tend to focus on post-modernity with its, its deeply rooted skepticism and um, the inability that we would realize the human person has to, uh, to perceive truth. And in fact, we are made for truth. We're wired for truth. Mm -hmm. uh, we long for truth and we look for truth. And if we can't find one, we'll substitute another truth for the truth. Um, but this notion of, of post-enlightenment and pre-enlightenment thought, I think, is foundational for an understanding of the sacramental imagination. Because mm -hmm. the way that David Kang was describing it, he was saying um, that in pre-enlightenment thought, there was the ability to think metaphorically. And it's the ability to think and live by metaphor that allows us to tap into the sacramentality of everything else, that everything is a metaphor. Uh, and I think metaphor is so rich because the metaphor, rather than a simile, a simile uses like and as to compare things, but the metaphor actually calls one thing another thing, that sense of identity. And mm -hmm. certainly in the incarnation of Christ, you have the metaphor, the great metaphor, which is the reality itself of God becoming man. Uh, that's maybe some theological thin ice that we could explore <laughs> over another cup of coffee at another time. But I think there's an idea there of that, that wedding. But I was so struck by this idea of being able to think metaphorically, which really allows us to think and live mystically. And I think that's the nub of the Catholic sacramental imagination. But you made an interesting point about imagine Jesus and, uh, and Joseph and Mary. Imagine Jesus in Nazareth sitting at the feet, playing on the floor with, I don't know, the latest little wooden horses that uh, Joseph constructed for him, a little fire burning in the hearth. Um, what were the stories, do you think, that Joseph and Mary were telling him? <laughs> uh, in other words, I don't know. what was Jesus reading at the time that inspired him and cultivated uh, his sense of, of uh, a sacramental hmm. imagination as a young man? Well, I think for one, he would have been, um, well, we know that he did read. For, by the time he was 30, he gave uh, his... Uh, 
his uh, not lecture, almost his homily at uh, at Nazareth. So uh, my well, suspicion at twelve he would have been teaching the at doctors. At twelve he so, would have been teaching yeah. the doctors as well. So I think one of the first things he would have been immersed in was the Old Testament, the scriptures, the scriptures. And um, could you? And that's where it's very fascinating to think of the word studying the word mm. and uh, yeah. and seeing himself in it. Well, one could even think of the way that he taught. Uh, because Christ teaches through myth. Mm. Uh, he, in fact, is, is a wonderful, um, the word that Tolkien would use, uh, mythopoeia. He's the, the myth maker. Um, and wasn't that what, uh, uh, what was the conversion point for C.S. Lewis when, when uh, you know, speaking about the power of myths, uh, which really is these metaphors, uh, these kind of narrative metaphors, um, mm -hmm. And, and saying that we're able to have, come into these fundamental truths by way of metaphor, uh, mm. almost like glancing at them in a mirror. And, and he was arguing that, well, wasn't the whole story of Christ simply a myth? And then Tolkien stopped him short and said, <laughs> but a myth that is true. Mm. That kind of stopped C.S. Lewis in his tracks. But Jesus spoke through parables and taught through parables, so I think there's a richness mm -hmm. there. And I think that it's even appropriate for the Incarnation to use parable and myth and story. Um, the reason being is if you think about it, um, it's very difficult for us to remember a formula or an argument, a syllogism, uh, mm. unless it's very, very simple. But we always remember stories of people and impressions. Did you hear the one about... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, like, you know, you have this image of, like, these old town gaffers sharing stories back and forth. And I remember. I remember. Yeah, closer to that than you are, baby. Yes. Uh, well, I wasn't <laughs> going to say it. Um, the hair tells all. But uh, <laughs> Careful. A razor can do a lot but, of things there, buddy. <laughs> but, yeah, it's true. It's true. Hopefully not in this podcast. Um, Stay tuned. Um, <laughs> but no, I think that there's a great truth because if you think about it, um, and you would, you know this really well, and I mean, Sarah Denard well, um, who teaches one of our Springtime of the Faith courses, um, she teaches something called the Bard School. Mm -hmm. And the Bard, the storyteller, the minstrel in history has always had a very fascinating place. Mm. You know, the traveling storyteller. And the storyteller actually often would be the one who tells some notions of wisdom. Mm. Rabbis and um, teachers, priests throughout the ages have used story as a means of communicating deeper uh, gospel truths deeper truth. or Catholic truths, well, you could but this argue. Is, this, is the, uh, this is the way that it's, it has been traditionally. It's the uh, the family gathered around the hearth, the tribe gathered around the campfire, mm -hmm. and the elders share the lore of their people mm -hmm. and convey truth and meaning. I think we've lost something about that from the storytellers. Well, and I think it ties into a bit of our Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment uh, kind of predicament. Yeah. Because with the Enlightenment, what you find is... Um, uh, a lot more of an emphasis on reason and not just any kind of reason it's more of a mathematical mm. uh, syllogistic reasoning and that being the primary thing you know and you know the the ancients would agree that this is important but they never viewed this in exclusion to myth although there's a few dialogues of plato that rent some very interesting reflections on that um and so there was a a, a suspicion of that kind of stuff um one of the things that i do find um hopeful um, at times in uh, post-modernity, which has multifaceted, it's very hard to pin down, mm -hmm. is that there are some strains that even though they are suspicious of meta-narrative, they are willing to dialogue with narrative and using story yes. and narrative and well, the, all this the kind of stuff. Well, the importance of personal experience 
Yeah. It is so foundational and the subjective experience. And I would concur. I think it would be uh, foolhardy uh, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. A uh, favorite expression at St. Therese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor babies, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think it's, so, it's very important to, to really uh, recognize that there is so much that is still uh, authentic and fundamental to the human person, human experience. And I think that many of the more modern, postmodern schools of thought are maybe overemphasizing that subjective experience, but mm -hmm. we have to be careful not to go to the other extreme. And I think that's part of the wisdom and the genius of John Paul II, who's able to find that bridge between the, uh, the emphasis on the objective scholasticism with an emphasis on the subjective mm -hmm. uh, rising in the post-enlightenment thoughts. Maybe that's why in this day and age, the power of narrative and the power of story is so, mm -hmm. uh, is so, uh, so clear and uh, is so important. Um, we're really speaking about the scriptures, of course, as, uh, uh, as something that is uh, formative uh, to the Catholic sacramental imagination, Christ himself teaching that way, and the great stories throughout the scriptures. Uh, I remember, I was baptized when I was 12, but I remember my, some of my first experiences of, uh, of Christianity at all. It was a, a teacher that I had, um, and I remember in grade six, and uh, uh, Harry Holtz, he would, uh, he would, he would read uh, read the Bible. So this isn't a public school, too. Hmm. And he would read the Bible stories. And I remember the story of Noah. That was the one that really caught my attention. I don't think I'd ever heard it before. I was in grade six. Uh, I might have been somewhat familiar with it, but actually hearing the story, I remember it captivating me. The story hmm. captivated me. Um, I wonder, uh, just as a thought, you were talking about what stories did Jesus know, and he teaches that way, and that's a story that captivated me. But what stories have captivated you? What stories have shaped <laughs> you and uh, have inspired and cultivated that sense of the sacramental imagination? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to answer that. And I, I'd just like to note it's kind of a nice little tie-off because we began talking about John Paul II and now we ended um, on the same thing. There you go. So um, I think this is a great spot to start talking about this. Um, really, uh, for me, um, I, I, in terms of biblically, I've always enjoyed the story of the Exodus. Um, mm. I've always found Moses and um, God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush to be burned into my mind, if you will. Um, but other than the Bible, which is a very rich resource, in fact, I remember there was actually an interview Word on Fire Institute did with um, the producer or the director, I forget which, of, uh, of all things, the uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> which is like, uh, okay, you know, but uh, Word on Fire is known for going into the peripheries that way. Sure. Uh, and he said, one can't be a good writer or a good storyteller without reading the Bible. Yeah. And I always thought that was fascinating when I heard that. And so, you know, uh, in many ways, if you're trying to engage in this Catholic sacramental, Catholic sacramental imagination, engage with the Word um, is my recommendation. Yeah. But so in my engagements with the Word, the Exodus has always stuck out to me. Um, Genesis has always captivated me. Um, I find um, Jeremiah always has a, an interesting place. Um, he's kind of uh, the most politically incorrect figure in the entire Bible, um, yeah. other than Jesus. But uh, that's, that's that for the Bible. In terms of actual, like, literature... Uh, yeah, maybe, yes. and just before you move on, because it's interesting speaking about needing to be familiar, it's good to be very familiar with the, uh, uh, with the scriptures. I remember an English class that I took um, that was saying there are actually uh, only two great stories, hmm. and every other story is a derivation of those two great stories. Uh, one is the story of, uh, of the fall, Mm -hmm. You know, that is the, uh, the story of sin, and the other is the, the story arc of redemption. Hmm. 
um, and an actually good story is going to have one or the other or both of those tied in. Off they do. And in the English class, it was Shakespeare. Hmm. And uh, certainly somebody that I would not consider myself an expert in by any means, but certainly extremely appreciative of Shakespeare and the great stories. So maybe we can start our, our little collection. Uh, Shakespeare, I would, I would throw on as, as a good one for developing a Catholic sacramental <laughs> imagination. Now, uh, if your high school experience is anything like my high school experience, it was challenging to get through the, uh, through the words. Mm -hmm. um, and often I find that teachers tend to just jump right in, try and dissect right away. Well, it's a play. Uh, it's meant to be read in whole. Um, I remember watching a documentary with Al Pacino who once said that Shakespeare is a little bit like rap music, which was an interesting <coughs> comparison. <laughs> uh, but it takes a while to tune the ear to. So uh, what I would suggest, and so certainly something that I've enjoyed in developing this, this imagination, this is certainly pre-enlightenment, mm -hmm. um, is the, uh, the, the movies. Mm. We're tying culture a little together, so the plays themselves to be read, but also the movies. Kenneth Branagh, especially his uh, mm. his productions, and they're beautiful. Brilliant. So, yep. Yeah. But this notion of these two story arcs. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I would agree with the Shakespeare thing. In fact, I remember reading Julius Caesar aloud in high school. Reading, um, oh, this is a fun one. Um, Much Do About Nothing. I loved mm. that play, and my my uh, I was lucky to have. Uh, high school instructors who had a conviction that it needed to be read aloud instead of just read on our own. And they encouraged entering into character. Oh, so you got up and acted them out in front of everyone? Yeah, you had the option to do that sometimes. And so I remember doing Much Ado About Nothing, and it was just stupendous. Um, but yeah, Julius C. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> I could feel my heart. I'm just feeling for all of those poor introverts. I would have been in high school too. It's like, do not look at me. Do not look at me. Do not look at me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's part of it too. You put yourself out there, self-transcendence and all the rest. But yeah, yeah it's hard for a 15-year-old to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one each one needs to do though. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I would agree with Shakespeare. Um, one thing that Shakespeare really drew upon is I would not discourage classical mythology. Oh, as yeah. well. Absolutely. Um, I've greatly benefited from my reading of Greek and Roman mythology. Yeah. Um, and so I even find that Shakespeare becomes more intelligible. Well, you were just telling me about one that uh, I think you just recently read. I know it's on my list of something, and a couple of our students have read it. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Till They Have Faces. That's a retelling of a... Yes, and that was actually one I was going to segue into. Till We Have Faces um, is it's a novel of Cupid and Psyche. So there's a myth of Cupid and Psyche that C.S. Lewis is actually uh, retelling in a different way. Um, and it's actually, it's the one word I would use for that book is I had a, I was feel, felt haunted afterwards. Like it was haunting as, oh yeah, go ahead and put it up. Um, the reason why is because it, it actually connects to another book that I'm about to recommend, Fantasies by George MacDonald too, right. which is uh, right over here. And I think that, now it's funny to note because C.S. Lewis read Fantasies by George MacDonald as well. And he said that this one Christ, uh, baptized his imagination. Hmm. after reading it. And so well, how important is the baptism of imagination for the development of a sacramental imagination, would you say? Um, oh dear, that's a, that's a good question. And I honestly don't. I think it's important. I couldn't tell you exactly how at the moment, um, just because my mind's going blank. But I think that if all thought and all pursuit of truth is dependent upon the imagination, as Aristotle and Aquinas says, then you know, if you can baptize the imagination, if you turn your imagination to seeing the sacramental perspective on things, um, 
then you're not far from truth. And maybe that's an element of the Catholicity of the sacramental imagination. And I would say small c Catholicity mm. uh, as the same way as small s sacramentality. Uh, small c, because it's about that universal and about these, these truths. But I think there is a, a purgation and a, mm. a purification of, of our intellects, of our imaginations that do have to happen. I agree. Uh, particularly in, in a culture which it tends to be often lacking any sense of a moral compass. <laughs> um, and so I think the baptism of the imagination is a beautiful thing. And I think it's an interesting thing to think as, as sacramental baptism happens with water that affects a spiritual cleansing, so too in small s sacramentality, maybe an immersion mm -hmm. in truth, goodness, and beauty uh, through the mm. written word cleanses and restores one's imagination. I think that's a beautiful notion. Yeah, and I, I have two thoughts. Um, one thought, just on what you said there, and then I'll say, I'll finish up what I was going to say about uh, Tilia faces and fantasies. No, sorry to have interrupted you. Oh, that's all right. We do all the time. We do. We do. Anyway. Anyways. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so I think that um, with regard to baptizing the Christian imagination, when you think about it, um, like, you know, a baptism is a suffusion of grace, the divine life. Um, I think, I wonder if this would be... I wonder why C.S. Lewis is talking about uh, baptism, whether he was meaning capital B or little b. I think that there are these various preambles to faith that can happen um, when we read something. And I wonder if there's a preamble to a Christian imagination that might have happened with George MacDonald. But he was a, he was a Scottish minister. Sure. Um, what you say about purgation brings to mind uh, Joseph Pieper. He was this uh, philosopher, this mm -hmm. German philosopher in the early part of the 20th century. And he said that appreciating beauty and appreciating truth um, can be done in small by the person with small virtue, but the growth of virtue actually um, lends to greater appreciation. It doesn't stop the arresting power of beauty um, for someone who is actually um, struggling with virtue. Mm. Um, but there is this progress, this progression um, that is purgative in many ways. And beauty in many ways, especially in the Catholic sacramental imagination, it, um, there is something of this painful element about it. Mm. Um, there's, a, I would argue, a crucifixion that happens, but we precisely, in beauty, it's attractive enough that we're willing to go through well, it maybe often. That's the notion of being pierced by beauty. I think it often, I think it would relate. Benedict Sixteenth was speaking of. Yeah, and for me, um, fantas fantasies, as well as Tullia faces, they both have that eerie quality. And mm. I use the word eerie very intentionally, because after you leave them, um, much like C.S. Lewis left fantasies, um, you feel different. You feel like there's been a change, and you suddenly look at the world slightly differently. Yeah. And you feel haunted. There's something fulfilled. There's something uh, left undone. Mm. And so, for me, those two books, for sure, um, really uh, sent me forward in that progression. Well, you've mentioned George MacDonald. You mentioned we've mentioned C.S. Lewis, and of course, you can't mention C.S. Lewis without throwing up Narnia there. So, you know. We'll stick Narnia on our collection. Of course, yeah. I we'll think that's wise. Here. Yeah, no, I think that's that's good stuff. Uh, see, um, Tolkien, of course. Oh, yeah, Lord of the Rings. Deeply inspiring. Definitely. Yeah. What are some other things that have uh, been formative for you? Well, um, I've got a few here. Um, I have some books here by Michael O'Brien. He's a Canadian author. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who's written quite a few large tomes. So I have here Island of the World and then Alpha Centuria. These are two of my favorites from him. This is basically the question of human suffering mm -hmm. in many ways, and it's, it's truly tragic. Mm. I won't give anything else away about it. But mm. um, 
one of the things that's nice about a Catholic sacramental imagination is it doesn't seek to escape the world. It seeks to embrace it. Um, and I would actually argue that's the difference between imagination and fantasy in many ways, but fantasy in a, in a different sense. Than in a different sense, as, yeah. as uh, actual escapism rather than exactly. escape. So I would actually yeah. use maybe um, what we might understand by fantasy, you and I, might be more imagination and what this particular distinction would mean is by fantasy is escapism. Yeah. yeah. So those two really were good. And um, uh, uh, Michael O'Brien's earlier stuff is I'm more familiar with, like Father Elijah, the first ones oh, that came classic. out. Just, yeah, solid, solid stuff. Um, and very prolific writer. And of course, you're mentioning about the grounding things in the human experience, which is often not the most pleasant thing, but Flannery O'Connor, her short stories, you, you got it, well, you got it. <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> there. And um, I have to admit that this is some, a bit on my to-read list as well. I've mm -hmm. read a few short stories by her, but yeah. they have this sticky quality. They just don't go away. And um, there's one story in particular in there called Revelations. Oh, um, Revelation, yes, yeah. Yeah, which yeah, is I a beautiful, beautiful, disturbing yeah. story. Yeah, um, yeah, it is small. Uh, it's a good thing that she only she wrote mostly short fiction because you can really <laughs> only t I find you can only take Flannery O'Connor in small doses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and her whole methodology was for people who are hard of hearing or hard of seeing, you have to yell loudly or <laughs> write big, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that's what her whole approach is. And what about for you, Jim? What well, is something, one? Uh, and I've got a couple here, but uh, uh, very, very early on, and, and some of this is, is very overtly Christian, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, uh, that's, uh, that's an old one, but uh, very much um, allegorical. I find that helpful. C.S. Lewis, again, uh, the Space Trilogy. For me, the Space Trilogy was just an incredible experience of being a one. I loved early British science fiction. And so when I came across the Space Trilogy, it was, uh, it was more for it being British science fiction than it was C.S. Lewis. But in, and so it's very much the myth drawing me deeper. Uh, encountering the Space Trilogy, I encountered a clear understanding of, of uh, a clearer understanding of, of an angelology, of the mm. role of angels. And the first two books in the trilogy, uh, uh, per, uh, out, out, of, out of the Silent Planet and Perilandra, uh, were good reads, uh, enjoyed them very much. The third book was a bit more of a slog, uh, mm. that hideous strength, a bit more philosophical, but I'd highly recommend that one. That was really important for me. Awesome. I'd also like to recommend Fyodor Dostoevsky, basically any of his books. Um, I have here The Brothers Karamazov, which uh, for me just really, he kind of deals with the messiness of human nature and mm. the strangeness of human relationships, particularly family relationships, and the inbreaking of grace into that. I found that really helpful. Right on. A uh, little bit lighter fiction, but certainly one that was, uh, uh, this is no, no Dostoevsky. But uh, f when I was on net, I read this, and it was uh, an initial encounter with contemporary fiction that I found very helpful um, and, and teaching me principles of spiritual warfare at the time. It was intriguing. But that's Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. Um, it's a good read. I enjoyed it. I would also throw on the bookshelf uh, something by a guy named James G. Anderson. Um, oh, who's that? <laughs> uh, the, he wrote a book called The Stone Holding and Darkling Fields of Erevan. Hey, isn't your middle name Gideon? It is. Oh, fact, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll put yeah, those yeah. on the bookshelves, too. <laughs> well, thank you, Nick. <laughs> yeah, these were fun to work on, these books, The Stone Holding and Darkling Fields, co-authored with a friend of mine, uh, Mark Seabank, and, and really trying to work in the tradition of, uh, of Tolkien, MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, um, but trying to do so with a fresh voice. Mm -hmm. uh, so if uh, this is kind of my foray into 
into the creative work of the sacramental imagination. Um, it's available on, uh, on Bain as an electronic, mm -hmm. as an e-book, uh, Bain Books, B-A-E-N. Um, so that's great. Thanks for bringing that one up. No problem. Put those in there. Awesome. Well, there's one that I would suggest of, of like sort. There's another uh, author residing nearby. This is, uh, this is The Tree by Denise Mallet. That's a name that we're familiar with, too. <laughs> you see, pregnant in body and pregnant in imagination, it seems. <laughs> so giving birth to books. Uh, and she just did a revision on this one, didn't she? And she just finished her second book, hasn't she? Yes, she's in the revising process. I'm working through that right now. And what's the title of that one? Uh, that one will, is called The, um, the Blood. The blood. Dum, dum, dum. Okay. So Denise Mount, of course, this is Nick's wife. Yep. Um, tremendous. I'll confess um, that this is on my to-read list. So is your book, Jim. Uh, I knew I could <laughs> confess that because we're in the same boat. Excellent. <laughs> oh, wonderful. No, I'm looking forward yep. to that. That's exactly. great. We're in the same sinking boat, as they say. Same sinking boat. Uh, another one that I, I, I would have to mention uh, as one of my absolute favorites for... Um, a good Catholic novel, but also the sacramental imagination is a canticle for Leibowitz. And uh, I, I really like this book. In fact, I think I'd loaned it to you. So, and you've yep, page 77. <laughs> and that's great. But by, by uh, Walter Miller. And again, because of my, uh, my enjoyment of science fiction, this is like good Catholic science fiction. Uh, it was written during the Cold War in the 50s. And uh, so it's about a post-nuclear apocalyptic church. Mm. And it's like future church history. Um, and without giving anything away, uh, well, maybe a little bit away, it really is the theme of the more things change, the more, the more they, they remain the same. same. Yeah, <laughs> so it's an interesting one to read. Awesome. No, that's great. Um, I think that pretty much exhausts our book list for now, which I'm sure we could keep going, but that would be a bit tedious for everyone listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe this is a good point to transition into the next part of our podcast, which sure. is movie discussion. Yeah. So we watched, we suggested a movie for the St. Therese students last week um, to watch, which was called The Staircase. Yeah. Now, The Staircase is all about the building of the staircase in the Royal Chapel in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, uh, a staircase with much uh, mystical, mysterious... Um, Speaking of legend and lore. A legend and lore, you know, surrounding it, um, where, where these uh, nuns had built a chapel, and for some reason, the staircase up to the choir loft had been forgotten. Yeah, overlooked. Overlooked. And so, you know, the architect hadn't noticed it, the master carpenter hadn't noticed the it. Mother Superior hadn't the noticed it. Mother Superior hadn't noticed it. But when she did. It. But when she did, <laughs> all things went loose. Yeah. Um, so there was this mysterious figure um, who historically they still don't know his identity, um, speculation uh, abounds, uh, who came in and built this staircase, which to many is a feat of engineering and mm -hmm. architecture. Um, and some even speculate that it was St. Joseph himself who built it. Yeah, you seem a little bit cautious and cherry about jumping into that. And I'll jump in wholeheartedly. I think that's wonderful. That's the, that's the very essence of this story is that it was this mysterious person that literally rode out of the desert and that built this staircase using no nails, mm -hmm. uh, just pegged and glued together with wood, uh, a spiral staircase, the only one that would have been anywhere near aesthetically pleasing and fitting in the very tight space but did so in a most remarkable way with no center post and, uh, uh, and then disappeared without receiving payment. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Mother Superior at the time was actually, uh, had a great devotion to St. Joseph and was asking for his, his assistance. Um, I, I rediscovered this movie, uh, The Staircase, 
just after the, uh, or in, 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 in the lead up to the, uh, the Feast of St. Joseph, which we've recently celebrated on the 19th of March. And I was in the middle of uh, preparing to make uh, a consecration to Jesus through St. Joseph. And certainly the last couple of years been leaning more into, uh, into Joseph's heart. Um, so I hadn't watched the movie in years. And mm -hmm. it, it's an older movie. Um, and uh, it, it's not, uh, it maybe lacks some of the, the flash and, and uh, uh, bluster of some of the more recent films. But there's something that is just so very profoundly beautiful, uh, mm -hmm. incarnational. Uh, coming back to that that notion of the fundamental human experience, there was something that was that was charged and fundamental about it mm. that I really loved. You watched it recently for the first time, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. And um, I uh, I found it very very striking. Um, I went into it uh, some uh, kind of prepared for the worst in terms of <laughs> to, to be honest, because sometimes major uh, cheese factor. Yeah, major cheese factor. <laughs> sometimes you know. Um, I'm sorry, Ignatius Films, sometimes, I'm, uh, that's probably going to be bleated out, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, sometimes the acting in these things is not always the best, and it's a little painful, but the story is always what I go in for. You know, for I these didn't things. find much cheese in this one, though. I know, I was actually pleasantly surprised. Um, it was very solid. Um, and, you know, even the, the person acting Jode, or Joseph, yeah. you know, it's all, it leaves Mr. it undone. Mr. Jode. Yeah, the Mr. Jode. Um, he was particularly subtle in his acting um, and tender. Um, that was one of the big things that really struck me about the film was how tender, tender. Yes. Uh, Jode, or I'll just call him Joseph, was in the film, um, particularly in his relationship with Mother Superior, mm -hmm. who had gone through some trauma earlier in the film and came out a bit jaded, you could say, because of it. Yeah. Um, what was your perspective yeah, well, on that? Yeah, well, I found that... I found that um, I, find, I, th I think you're right. Like, I, I know I went into it uh, not really remembering it well the first time, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, assuming that there's going to be a little bit of mm, cheesiness to it. And what I did find was a simplicity to it, a simplicity mm -hmm. that actually was quite compelling and quite engaging. Uh, tenderness, I think, is a beautiful word for it. Um, it was very human. Uh, I found that the character that was playing uh, the Mother Superior uh, she's very ill in the film. Uh, there was just the, a, a very real humanity. She was, uh, and wrestling with her own, her own struggles, her own pride uh, that was coming out. And it was the tenderness of Mr. Jode that really, mm -hmm. that really drew her out of that. And he was able to meet her um, uh, in her humanity. Uh, I remembered from the first time that I watched it, there was this kind of awkwardness about the relationship between Jode and the Mother Superior that, that at, first, uh, at first sense kind of weird. It's like she's a nun. Um, and, and even this last viewing, and I watched it, at, at first I had that sense. Uh, it was recalling to mind the words of Nacho, <laughs> Ignacio, Ignacio in uh, Nacho Libre. Have you ever had feelings for a nun? <laughs> you can see Jode has, I got feelings for a nun. But it's not handled in that... Uh, 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 kind of pubescent way that was coming through in Nacho Libre, as fun as that movie is, that was very human. There was something that was deeper mm -hmm. in this film. Uh, and in retrospect, as I was pondering the film after watching it, what I was really struck by was the evidence in the film, in the story, of the chaste love of Joseph, the chaste spousal love of Joseph. Mm -hmm. And that really came through. So insofar as a narrative, as a, an example, that, that helped, helped to open up my mind and my heart through, through art to mm. a deeper understanding of Joseph's love and tenderness. 
It was that. Like there was a very clear affection of Jode for the Mother Superior and of Mother for Jode, and yet there was complete purity and complete chastity. They were meeting at a fundamental human, and he was hmm. being the quintessential uh, masculine presence, the Joseph, the provider, the protector, very gentle, mm -hmm. very gentle, and guarding her dreams, and guarding her heart, and guarding her person in her, in her weakness, and he recognized her weakness, mm -hmm. uh, and was unafraid of that. And she was able to, uh, in a sense, be the essence of femininity, mm -hmm. uh, bringing forth incredible life around her uh, by being able to rest in this very pure and very authentic love of Jode, who, who then does disappear. But it's something that's very beautiful. I quite loved the movie. Yeah, and one of the things that I found totally striking about it was the deep symbolism uh, that the filmmakers ended up doing. I'm not sure if it's historical or not, um, some of these points, but I'll kind of say some elements of the movie. Um, that tie into this theme was that you know you wonder after when you while he's building the staircase um, is Joe's primary purpose in the film um, building the staircase for the chapel or is it building the staircase in Mother Superior's heart mm. and you see this beautifully um, this theme come out at the end of the movie where Joe has left the staircase is done finished complete and Mother Superior who is um, at doors, the, the, the death's door, sorry, um, decides, I need to climb this staircase. Mm. So she climbs the staircase, slips, and kind of crawl, like drags herself up. Um, but you can, you can just see her strong Irish temper and will. Oh, yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. it's an intense scene. Yeah. And um, they play music in the background. This uh, fellow who um, Joe had accompanied and journeyed with um, comes and comes into his own at that moment, too. Mm -hmm. And then at the top of the staircase, Mother Superior lies down and in peace. And then she actually dies, yeah. the film seems to indicate. A little spoiler there, but that's okay. Yeah, I know. Well, that's a... You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> But I thought that that was beautiful because it connected the exterior um, mm. journey of finding someone to build a staircase for the choir loft. With the interior With journey. the interior. And I found a point earlier in the film that was like that too. There's a point, I need to think about this a little more, but there was a point where uh, the staircase was destroyed. It had been mm -hmm. built and then it was torn down. And I think, I have to watch the film again, but I think that is actually corresponding with an interior journey that Mother is having where she's having a purification of her intention for the staircase. She says it's for the glory of God. But in the face of, jo of Jode's tenderness, she actually comes very quickly to realize that it's not really for God's glory, but it was an assertion of her own pride. Mm. And there's almost a having to tear that down and a rebuilding of that. So I'll have to watch the movie again. This weekend, I, I think I'd like to watch another movie. I was thinking about watching Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. That's an <laughs> oldie, uh, but a goodie. Uh, I know it's available on Netflix, on Amazon Prime. Um, what do you think? Do you want to? Ah, well, I haven't seen the film, so uh, much like with The Staircase, I was willing to just go in and take it in. I'd like to see Groundhog Day. It's um, Bill Murray's been one of those actors I've been wanting to get up on for a while, too, but... Um, yeah, I think I've heard lots of good reviews about Groundhog Day, too. So yeah, it should make for an interesting discussion. Yeah. So next time, we'll, uh, with our movie discussion, we'll talk about Groundhog Day. If, you, if the listeners would like to peek into that, that's great. Um, yeah. If you just want to hear about it, that's also great. Right on. There probably will be spoilers. I think there's also uh, like Netflix listen or watching parties. I think that's a program they have now, so you know, friends can coordinate together if they want to sync up the viewing, and they can actually message each other on the side, which is... 
Yeah, I think cool, that's a neat feature. But of course, that requires one to have a Netflix account, which maybe I'll have to get on and do now. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, big distraction. Okay. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and now it's time for the show, part of the show, where Jim and Nick take questions that have been submitted to them and, uh, and ask each other these questions. Yeah, the interesting thing about this is the questions that I have have been submitted by, uh, by past students of St. Therese. Uh, but they're not questions for me, they're questions for Nick. And Nick has not seen these questions, and Nick has a list there of questions. <laughs> and Jim has not seen these questions. So this is a little bit of spontaneity for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just in, in preparation for this, you know, I, what are your thoughts on, uh, or I'm interested in your thoughts on, uh, feel free to, uh, to email uh, or text uh, any questions that you might have uh, for Nick to me. <laughs> and so too for me. If you want to stump the chump with Jim, um, Send me a good question. Not I'll that hard to do. And maybe that's a good point. Like this is not so much about uh, uh, looking for stumpage, nor is it looking for uh, uh, you know, necessarily uh, trying to put any kind of embarrassment, but it's really is a chance to handle some questions in a creative way and, mm -hmm. uh, and put things out. So you want to go first? Okay, yeah, we'll do Age Before Beauty. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're okay. asking for it now. So uh, here's a question. Um, by Natalie Godin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim, what would you love to be the patron saint of? What would I love to be the patron saint of? Oh, coffee. No, that's Saint Drogo. He's already taken that one. Um, <laughs> patron saint of. You know what? I would have to say, if I could choose, and I don't think it would be my choice, uh, but if I could choose to be the patron saint of something, it would be the, be the patron saint of something that... Um, is probably closest to my heart, and that would be the formation of young people. Hmm. If I could be the patron saint of the formation of young people, or the accompaniment of young people, or encouragement, uh, yeah, hmm. I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll have to see. It probably what'll happen is I'll end up, you know, dying from you know lead poisoning from being stabbed by a pencil. I'll be the patron saint of, of graphite pencils or something. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, just in case the, that uh, if that becomes true, good luck, alumni. You've uh, you've never escaped Jim in that case. <laughs> <laughs> what being a patron saint of graphite pencils? Oh no, not that. Oh, not that one. Okay. <laughs> the previous yeah, one. <laughs> All right, Nick, I got one for you then. Okay, here we go. Um, this one's coming from Real Chartier. Oh. Yeah, it's a good one. It's it's uh, um, a serious one. Uh, so Nick. What is one of the greatest lessons you have learned so far since beginning your role as assistant director of St. Therese? Oh, dear. Assistant director of formation. Uh, one of the greatest lessons. I mean, there's been many great lessons. Um, one of the biggest lessons I've had, um, particularly teaching here at St. Therese Institute, um, and they're connected. It's, um, I have two things, really. They're two sides of the same thing, is a deeper understanding of the little way, of St. Therese, and even my, and with that, my Catholic faith, of course, and also gratitude. Mm. Um, those are two great lessons I've had since uh, working here. Um, the little way, really just showing up to each moment and um, offering it up as a sacrament of the moment and trying to be childlike uh, before Jesus Christ, and coming to understand that particularly as a man um, mm. and as a teacher. Um, St. Therese of Lisieux's spirituality is uh, somewhat frilly, French girl. Um, but there's something deeply enduring um, and endearing underneath it all. And so for me, it's, it's been a real uh, boot camp 
and mm. just realizing that the task is immense, but that um, God's in charge. He's the Lord of history and he's the Lord of my history. Beautiful. And so um, it's been, that's been one of the biggest um, themes that I've taken away. And it's, and it's changed my life. Um, I, I'd gotten to know St. Therese in the little way before St. Therese Institute, but it's um, just the sheer immensity of coming in and teaching four classes and trying to learn how to teach all at once was massive. And the Holy Spirit really came through. And then gratitude, um, just uh, the Lord spoke to a desire I had, which was to be involved in some way with um, the Catholic intellectual tradition, with teaching, with um, encountering truth and goodness and beauty in this kind of environment. And those are two big things there. Um, there's many, many other lessons I could say, but I think mm. I'll stick with those for now. Beautiful. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, In my gratitude. pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe uh, one or two more uh, questions here. Okay, so... Um, okay. So this might one might be... Um, uh, well, one second here. This one might be a little more uh, abstract here. Um, that, uh, no, no, let's not do that one. Sorry. Uh, there's a few options. Let's take one from Riel Chartier because he spit one my direction here. This is more particular to you, Jim. Is there a certain well that you've been drawing from more in these times where sacraments, especially the Eucharist, are not as re readily available? Oh, yeah. No, I think that's wonderful. It's funny. I was just pondering that uh, earlier today as I was reflecting on, uh, on how things have kind of moved into this, uh, this time of, of challenge. Um, I firmly believe, and I can take a running start in answer to this question, uh, I firmly believe that the heart has reasons of which reason is unaware, that's Blaise Pascal, hmm. uh, and so too uh, the spirit can be very aware, of course, of what's happening and can prepare us, which we only see that in retrospect. Um, and, and I think it's, it's not insignificant by any means that the Holy Father would have declared Word of God Sunday for this past, uh, mm -hmm. the first one, for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time, that was just January. That's not long ago. Re-emphasizing the importance of the Word of God. And certainly in the movement here at St. Therese, what we've been doing over the last few years, focusing on that, um, if you make a home in the Word, if you abide in the Word, which was the Gospel today. Mm -hmm. uh, and how beautiful is that? that? That call of, if you remain in the Word, and my students know well enough when I'm talking about the Jerusalem Bible translations, make a home in the Word, mm. you will... Uh, you will know the truth and you will truly be my disciples. You know the truth and the truth will make you free. So I would say the, the deepest well that I've been drawing from and the well that I have been coming to regularly, and maybe that's good because that brings that practice. So now there's the ability to draw is the word of God. Mm -hmm. um, and living in the word of God, uh, Lectio Divina, uh, and then sharing, sharing the insights. I think that's so important. Uh, I think of the image of the... Um, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus saying, if you knew who was before you, and I think in mm -hmm. this time we can certainly have that sense of the Word of God saying, if you knew who was before you, and her immediate desire in having received the living water of the gospel from Jesus, going and desiring to share it. Uh, and I think that these can be very creative times of sharing it, but mm -hmm. not just the sharing it, the living it of Nazareth. So I would say the Word of God and I just threw Nazareth in at the end. I think that's absolutely, necess absolutely necessary. In fact, the whole world is being rather forced to live Nazareth. Uh, I was sharing this yesterday. I think it was with you, Nick, uh, that idea of when you find yourself in a, in, a, in a skid, what do you do? You turn into it to get out of it. Uh, so if 
Nazareth has been thrust upon us, simplicity, poverty, littleness, hiddenness, um, then the best thing we can do as Christians is turn into it. Let's live Nazareth. So there we go, Nazareth in the word. So that was a long, uh, long answer to a, to a simple question, but <laughs> we're known for people that. are used to ex used to that from me. <laughs> Here's another one for you. All right, this is from Natalie Godin. Oh, right, there we ready? go. Here we go. Riel and Natalie, Natalie. team it up. So, uh, and I got one more for you here too, but we'll do this one right now, Nick. Uh, so, who is a saint you've recently discovered and are currently fangirling over? Her <laughs> words, not mine. That's such a Natalie <laughs> question. Um, oh gosh, a recent saint I've discovered. And are fangirling over. And I'm fangirling, fangirling. over. That's very important that you make sure that you answer that um, with the emphasis on fangirling over. Fangirling. <laughs> well, Natalie, I'm, I'm not sure if I fangirl in general. Um, <laughs> but oh, come on, give us a little scream for a saint. <laughs> but Christian's all of a sudden skeptical here. Like, Nick, you fangirl all the time. Um, <laughs> I say, who's one of your recent discoveries? Um, well, I'm wondering if I should ask Christian what I'm fangirling over because he seems to have an idea. Um, let me think here. Recently, there has been someone recently that I, I've uh, encountered, but I'm not thinking of their name right now. Maybe they, they want to remain in the background for now. But one person this year that I've really come to appreciate and get to know and have some warmth and familiarity with is uh, St. Philip Neri. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, um, there's lots of uh, urban legends surrounding that fellow, but um, just even the urban legend tells you something about him. Um, I find his, his warmth, his uh, geniality, his sense of humor, his overabundant joy, and even the way he kind of went about forming the Oratorians to be mm. totally fascinating to me. Um, I particularly love um, one story that I heard from a student who did some research on him, that he would get so excited for the celebration of the Mass that he would actually have to read comic books to calm down. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I haven't looked that one up yet, but I think that's totally fitting with what I've seen. Um, there was a, he was a real sanguine. And um, for me, he just puts, uh, puts a face on that warm love of the Father and that, um, mm. the, the love of the Incarnation that spurred the Incarnation forward. Um, so I'm sure there's a couple others that I could fangirl over. I mean, of course, Thomas Aquinas and cool. Bonaventure and um, yeah. Augustine Philip are all Neary, I like that one. Yeah, Philip yeah, Neary yeah. is one for I'm sure. Striving for that too. Uh, you know, if I was going to be a patron saint, coming back to an earlier question, I'm going to be a patron saint. I'd like to be known for mirth <laughs> and girth. But mirth. <laughs> mirth and girth. Well, in that case, you've got Chesterton to draw on there. <laughs> you got Chesterton <laughs> to draw on for that, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 All right, so. Um, another one? Oh, let's see. what. Uh, there's probably Real one quickie. more. And then I think this will be the last one for you. Um, okay, let's see here. Um, an interesting one from Christina Dennis, um, or Denis. Denis, yeah. Denis, she's French, that's right. Um, how do you find out who your patron saints are? Well, uh, how do you find out who your patron saints are? Well, uh, the most obvious would be your Christian name, mm -hmm. uh, the name that you've been given. Um, so for Christina, it would be... <laughs> Christ, obviously, <laughs> we're all that. We all bear the name Christian, so that's beautiful. But uh, Denis, I would think Saint, Saint Denis would be a, a good patron for the family. Uh, I would also pay attention to what are your charisms, what are your interests, what are your aptitudes. Uh, and the saints are all persons. They want to have a personal relationship with them. So I would think the best answer to you know, discovering a patron saint is see who puts in an appearance mm -hmm. and pay attention to that. Uh, who's on the radar screen? Be intentional in... Uh, 
um, in entering into a relationship with the saints. To answer this question, perhaps you could share one or two stories about how you might have found someone who has been Well, I think it's you. largely simply been that way. Mm -hmm. uh, St. James, obviously, James Anderson, that's been an important, uh, an important one. Um, and then those that have, uh, have come onto the scene. St. Therese, part of the apostolate, so I, I count her as a, as a patron. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, he's been kind of dogging me the whole time, and every time I turn around, mm -hmm. something Franciscan is going on, so he's with me. Joseph, uh, and an increasing devotion to Joseph, and that has simply been a movement of the heart and movement of the spirit. So I recognize the patronage of Joseph, particularly as I reflect on fatherhood and the mm -hmm. importance of that. Um, and then there's sometimes these, uh, these lesser known saints that kind of uh, come up uh, because you, they arouse curiosity or interest. You know, I think of St. Dunstan, who is a patron <laughs> saint of blacksmith who grabbed the devil apparently by the nose with some tongs. I love that story. Uh, St. Raymond of Peñafort, I remember reading his story and it just caught my heart. Patron saint of windsurfers, not that I'm a windsurfer, but just such a cool story, you know? And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that was kind of neat. All right, I got one more for you, all right? Okay. And this one's coming from Christina Denis as well. Um, not so much a question as a request. Um, so just as we're wrapping up here, would you please demonstrate your beatboxing skills? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we'll see. I might have to do a few takes. There we go. That's it. That's about it. That's all I dare. <laughs> I was trying to think. I was trying to think how I would uh, uh, go to answer that question, and I immediately was going to do this and say, "Oh no, no, that's Bird Box." My yeah. mistake. <laughs> <laughs> a little generational. What's beatboxing anyway? <laughs> that's funny. So, time for the last word. Okay. Rock, Rock paper, paper, scissors. Oh, that's mine. Yeah, there we go. Yours. Scissors okay. over paper. Very so, fitting. Uh, I want to thank you very much, Nick. It was a good conversation. It was a lot of fun and uh, enjoyed this. And I hope that uh, those who are watching have enjoyed it as well. Uh, I'll be very interested in your comments, your thoughts, your suggestions. Uh, just a reminder Groundhog Day is uh, the film up for the weekend. Uh, we'd be very interested in any questions you want to submit. Those for Nick come to me. Uh, those for me, go to Nick. Feel free to text those or email them in. Um, and if you've got a name for what this thing... This podcast, this conversation... This, what was it? This mission, this quest, this... This uh, thing. thing. <laughs> well, you're obviously qualified. <laughs> All right, so that's it. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Nope, mine's the last word. And that's a hand... Si no. I'm 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 silent. You are. I am being silent. So goodbye. Okay, bye. Goodbye.